Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to inspire you to follow Christ, and to convict you to lead a consecrated life. Have you ever encountered somebody that accuses the Bible and Christianity of hating and oppressing women? In this very helpful talk, Mary Wilson, director of women's initiatives for the Gospel Coalition, wrestles with a couple of Old Testament texts that critics use to show that God hates women, including Deuteronomy 21 and Numbers 5. First, Wilson shows how we perceive these ancient scriptures from the perspective of our own culture today, and then she shows how they function in their original historical context, and she concludes that God gave these laws to protect women not oppress them. This is an important subject worth your consideration. Thanks to Andrea, the Gospel Coalition, and Mary Wilson for permission to rebroadcast this here on Restitutio. Here now is episode 133, Is God a Misogynist? with Mary Wilson. Well, I'm delighted to be able to look with you today at one of the topics in the scripture that, that displays the beauty and goodness and grace of the Lord Jesus and of God the Father and the Spirit. And that is the topic of, of God's love for his image bearers, particularly his, his female image bearers. I believe that the scriptures give a resounding no to the question that is the title of our workshop, which is, is God a misogynist? And one of you, who the only reason you're here is because you're my friend, obviously, came up to me and said, I'm coming to your workshop, but what's misogynist? So that's a you know, telltale sign that you're just here because you're my friend. But misogyny is, is just scorn, hatred of women. So we're asking the question, does God hate women? Is God scornful of women? And the scriptures paint an enormously positive vision for God's view of female image bearers. And so in our time today, that, that's what we're about. I want to, to argue my case to you, and Lord willing, it will uh, be successful. But first, I, I want to ask a question. How many of you in this room have ever heard the objection to Christianity, probably from a non-Christian, um, the objection to Christianity that, that God is a misogynist? How many of you? Yeah, okay. It's a common objection. Our, our unbelieving friends, many of them harbor suspicions about the Christian God's posture toward women. And sometimes they're repeating what they've heard from prominent scholars uh, or, or from their friends. Oftentimes, um, this is particularly lodged against the so-called, and notice that I'm doing air quotes, God of the Old Testament, uh, and and we, we see that God, a figment of our imagination, as hateful towards women or at best treating them like second-class citizens. So it's probably the case, actually, that even some of us in this room might be harboring suspicions. And I just want to say, if that's the case for you, I'm so glad you're here. And I, I, I'm so glad that we're looking at this together. The, the main reason that, that I want to address this topic is to equip us for particularly evangelistic conversations. I want us to be equipped to engage this objection. You notice how many of us raised our hands. 
We've got to be ready to make a defense. And, and readiness to make a defense involves going to those particularly challenged texts themselves and showing how, no, this isn't a case of misogynistic oppression, but actually we can see God's care for women here and his love for women here. Now, I know that's a bold statement, so you're going to have to see if, if what we have before us bears out. The truth of the matter is that the, the God we see in the Old Testament is no misogynist. He, he is the very God we know uh, through Jesus Christ. His character never changes. So that when we examine the life and ministry of Jesus, we see the full expression of God's posture toward his female image bearers. Let's just remember for a second, who is Jesus? He's a man who welcomed women to sit under his teaching, a man who healed women oppressed by demons and diseases, a man who called upon his disciples to admire the generosity of an impoverished widow, a man who received financial patronage from women for his ministry and included these women as those who traveled with him through cities and villages proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, a man who commissioned a group of women as the first witnesses to his resurrection. Jesus Christ unquestionably values and respects women and engages them in his mission. And then we see, see in the early church that this relational pattern is continue, continue to be lived out with women fully engaged in all sorts of ministries. God's posture toward his female image bearers doesn't change from Old Testament to New Testament. The trouble is that there are some New Test or there are some Old Testament passages that seem that strike us as out of alignment with this gracious posture toward women, which is manifest in the New Covenant. So this is what we want to do today, and you'll see on your handout. It's laid out. It's a tripartite workshop. <laughs> you got it. First, we're going to lay out a redemptive historical foundation by noting a few things from Genesis one through three. And regrettably, we are going to zoom. <laughs> Second, we're going to zoom out. Oh, well, hmm, that was accidental. We're going to zoom out and talk about a few guiding principles for the interpretation of all, any Old Testament ethical passage. But actually, we're going to be focusing. I'll just highlight the ones that relate particularly to gender. Then third, we're going to zoom in and focus on two Old Testament ethical texts related to gender that many find problematic. So when we're going to look at these two passages, our goal is not to expound those passages, to, to look at every detail of those passages. Our goal is to look at those passages to sharpen our tools that we can then use for other Old Testament passages that, are prob that other people find problematic. We're going to see, again, that the scriptures do not sanction misogyny. No. God's heart is to guard and protect his female image bearers. And by God's grace, he'll show us that through his word. So this is the burden and the logical flow of this workshop. Are you ready? <laughs> well, we're not going to try to be exhaustive. We're not going to give definitive answers. I'm just going to, Lord willing, again, tip our hat in the right direction, sharpen a few of our tools, and then the work lies ahead of us uh, after this workshop for us to continue to press in. Let's go to the Lord now in, in prayer and ask for his help. Father, I thank you that you have created us to live in utter dependence upon you. 
And I thank you that, that I feel that right now with this workshop. And I ask you, as I ask you many times, that anything that I say that is not of you, would you in your kindness have it fall away? Father, I thank you that my sisters in this room live in utter dependence upon you and upon your word. I ask that you administer to their hearts through this rigorous exercise that we have laid out ahead of us. Father, I ask particularly for those women in this room for whom conversations about gender-differentiated power and sex and abuse and these sorts of things are particularly painful, I ask that you would hold them close. Would you remind them of your heart for them? Would you give them great wisdom as they continue to trust you in areas of suffering? We love you, Lord. Would you, would you open the eyes of our heart that we may behold you in your law? It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Please do be sure to have your handouts in front of you. You'll need them. Uh, it will make for easier listening. It's not necessarily going to make for easy listening, but, but easier. To grasp the nature of any biblical law, we have to set it in its place within the Bible's central story. This is because in the Christian scriptures, laws are not abstract moral or ethical principles devoid of a relational context. I'm going to say that again. In the Christian scriptures, laws are not abstract moral and ethical principles devoid, taken out of, without a relational context. Old Testament law is not a historical. It's embedded within God's big story of redemption that begins in the Garden of Eden and will culminate in the new garden of the new heaven and new earth. And so, so naturally, we need to remind ourselves how this story got started after all. So we'll just take a few moments here, and I'm just going to make comments. I'm really just going to read through these bullet points on, on that first part of your handout. These are directly relevant to our project. We see in Genesis 1 that God creates both man and woman in his image. We also see that God blesses both man and woman and gives both of them dominion over his creation. So God dignifies the woman by creating both of them in his image and then by calling both of them to image him in this world throughout their work. And God creates his image bearers as sexually differentiated persons. Gender's not a bad or restrictive thing. Quite the contrary. The distinct maleness and femaleness of God's image bearers played a part in his ultimate declaration that his creation was very good. Then in Genesis 2, we see that God creates men and women as interdependent and complementary persons. Now, I wish I could develop these rather than simply asserting them, <laughs> but I'll, I'll, I'm just going to make one elaborative comment. And one way that we observe the interdependence and complementarity of man and woman is in the sequence of their creation. God created one image bearer, man, then he created a second image bearer, the woman. A few places in the New Testament provide us with authoritative, inspired interpretations of this sequence, of this creation order, man first, then woman. And, and these texts show us God's design of male headship within a marital relationship and within the church. Passages like Ephesians 5 show that God designed this relational shape within marriage and within the local church for his glory. 
and for the flourishing of his image bearers, his male image bearers and his female image bearers. This is a good gift, one that, that we, we sadly sometimes distort or just neglect. So as we consider that the whole sweep of salvation history, we see, now this is important, that God ties his design for marriage to Christ's relationship with the church, which ultimately culminates in the marriage supper of the Lamb. So one function of any biblical legislation about human marriage, like Genesis 2.24, is to point forward to shape God's people according to his ultimate redemptive purposes for them. And this is, again, going to be important for us to bear in mind as we come to our text today. So we see the, the extremely positive view of women in these foundational Old Testament texts. The very setting of salvation history radically affirms the dignity, worth, beauty of women. But many of us know how the story continues. It twists when we come to Genesis 3. That the man and the woman transgress God's law, and immediately following their sin, their relationship is invaded by shame, fear, and mistrust. And we can attest, can't we, that we see this estrangement and ache present between men and women in every society, even though it expresses itself differently according to cultures. But, and this is our fifth bullet point listed on your handout, while the fall distorts, it does not destroy men and women's correspondence to God, they're being made in his image, or their correspondence to one another, their interdependence and complementarity. And it's to broken, sinful, and fallen image bearers that God is giving his Old Testament law. That's our rapid pace laying the redemptive historical foundation for Old Testament law, recognizing, of course, that we haven't talked about the story of Israel, but, but we're simply just talking about the very beginning of um, this redemptive history. So let's come now to our second stage where we're, we're going to think more specifically about how we interpret God's old covenant laws, his laws which are firmly embedded in this big story of redemption. Let's read, I'm going to rather, sometimes I say, let's read together, and people think I mean, let's all read together, but I'm just going to do it. Let's read uh, the, the fourth principle listed. The pervasive sin, distortion, brokenness, and abuse of power, including misogynistic oppression, in our world are effects of human rebellion against God. The painful situations described in the scriptures relating to poor treatment of women reflect the tragedy of human transgression. Therefore, any action God takes to curb and or liberate a person from such sin and brokenness exalts his mercy. Our fifth principle. We must distinguish between prescriptive ethical material and descriptive ethical material in the Old Testament. What I mean by that is simply what is being commanded and what is being described. Simply because the Old Testament attests to polygamous practices, for example, doesn't mean God endorses polygamy. In fact, where polygamy comes into view, usually the text implicitly critiques it by showing its destructive consequences. I mean, how did it work out for Solomon and David? Not too, not too well. So the narrator is implicitly critiquing polygamy. The, the sixth guiding principle, which we'll read in a moment, relates to the fact that, that the two passages we're going to read momentarily 
are what's known as casuistic law or case law. That means that while they express timeless principles, the laws are written to address very particular, specific circumstances. When I think about Old Testament case law, I think about disciplining children, and I don't have any, so I, I can think about it and not, you know, beat my head against the wall like some of you. Uh, I think about disciplining children. Those of you who are parents know that you put children under laws for their own good as minors, but the rules change when they become, when they reach majority status. That doesn't mean that the character of the parent changes, but that the rules are shaped for particular objectives in particular stages of your children's lives. I have, as you've heard, 10 nieces and nephews, and one of them is, well, I'm just not going to go into it. He, he's great. He's also a little bit of a terror. My nephew, Mac, has a bad habit. He, uh, when he goes into the bathroom, he throws anything he can find in the toilet. So one of the rules, one of the household rules with Mac is that when he goes potty, he has to have the door open. Now listen, if that's still the rule when he's 18... Something's wrong up in there, in that, in that Cowan household. So the laws change when Mac, re Lord willing, when Mac reaches majority status, the laws will change. Okay, so bearing this in mind, let's read our sixth guiding principle. While God's law for Israel is perfect, it takes into account that his people and their world are not. Casuistic law, for example, sometimes describes situations and underlying relational dynamics that are not necessarily sanctioned by God. And then it provides instruction for righteousness in the midst of these broken situations. Jesus makes this dynamic of case law clear in Matthew 19.8 when he says to the Pharisees, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. Biblical law, in part, functions to restrain sin within a fallen world rather than to create an ethical system for a perfected sinless humanity within a perfected sinless world. Relatedly, Old Testament law points forward to Christ and to the new creational realities that he inaugurates through the gospel of the kingdom. So God doesn't give the Mosaic law in the first instance in order to establish by it a sinless, perfected society that fully expresses his purposes for men and women in a human society that itself is sinless and perfected. We must wait for Jesus Christ <laughs> and, and to usher in the kingdom of heaven, this kingdom that will culminate again in the new heaven and new earth where human society will be sinless and perfected by God. And we'll see full human flourishing there. And we must wait for God to pour out his spirit at Pentecost to equip his people to live out the power of the gospel more fully. <clears throat> Lastly, sigh of relief, let's read our eighth guiding principle. Here we go, Deuteronomy 21, 10 through 14. When you go out to war against your enemies and the Lord your God gives them into your hand and you take them captive and you see among the captives a beautiful woman and you desire to take her to be your wife and you bring her home to your house, she shall shave her head and pare her nails and she shall take off the, the clothes in which she was captured and shall remain in your house and lament her father and her mother a full month. After that you may go into her and be her husband and she shall be your wife." 
But if you no longer delight in her, you shall let her go where she wants. But you shall not sell her for money, nor shall you treat her as a slave, since you have humiliated her. What in this passage might trouble a contemporary Western reader? You're like, where do I begin? (laughs) Ask me a harder question. This is easy. Wait, I can't hear. Sorry. God's role in the process? Mm. Mm-hmm. Sounds like sex slavery. She d- yeah. The woman, we don't hear mention of, of choice with regard to the woman. Or, yeah, absolutely. Any other thoughts? We don't see evidence of mutual consent. She's subjectified. So the woman is acted upon. Any other thoughts? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. We, that, that would be an objection. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's great. And this will be the last one. That's a good one. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. And we'll, we'll come to that. The, it's considered her humiliation. Thank you. Those are, those are good. That's, I think those are exactly right. Those are the things that we would hear. Naturally, many ethical questions arise when, when we look at texts that are about ancient legislation about warfare, captivity, gender-differentiated power, sex, slavery. I mean, we've got it all. We're not going to, again, we're not going to answer all these questions exhaustively. I, I'm simply going to put forward three observations that I think are worth considering when we, when we start to dig into this text. Uh, you're, you're also going to see on your footnotes a resource listed there. Um, that, that if you want to press further into this, I think that's a good resource. She lays things out pretty clearly so you can press into that yourself. So here are the three things. I've given you fill in the blanks because I figured, you know, it's after lunch. You need fill in the blanks. I, usually I find that kind of condescending when somebody gives me fill in the blanks, but I figured it's, lunch, it's right, right now. you got to have it. So first, this law deals with the responsibilities of the powerful more than the rights of the powerful. Second, this law demands the recognition of the personhood of the most vulnerable. And third, this law is concerned with the covenant relationship. So first, this law deals with the responsibilities of the powerful more than the rights of the powerful. The information we have on on ancient Near Eastern practices in warfare help us discern this since we can see more clearly how this law would have struck its original audience. We have different sorts of evidence about how women would have been treated on the battlefield, like like this one in Deuteronomy 21. We have biblical texts like Amos 1.13 that describe ancient Near Eastern warriors ripping open pregnant women in the midst of military campaigns. But even more helpful is the ancient Near Eastern iconographic evidence. We have some Assyrian reliefs that provide details about how captives would have been treated, and it is a grisly picture. It's a picture of Assyrian brutality against helpless people, including women and children. This biblical legislation about a non-Canaanite woman stands against such warfare treatment of women in which the victor is commended for his exercise of full and brutal aggression against his defeated foe. Instead, this law regulates the way a soldier may treat a vulnerable woman on the battlefield. As the person who has all the power, 
He has all the responsibility. The law restrains the victorious soldier from abusing the powerless woman, either on the battlefield far away from Israel, as we see in verses 10 through 13, or in the land of Israel itself, as we see in verse 14. Let's consider on the battlefield. If he sees a beautiful woman, desires her, and takes her, language which is resonant with Genesis 3 and 6, for what it's worth, then he is accepting full responsibility for her as his wife. He can't treat this woman as a sex object. He can't treat her as an it. Any sexual relationship he has must be in the context of a marriage covenant. And at home, after he marries her, he can't treat her as a second-class citizen. If, if he decides not to marry her, or if he decides to divorce her, which again, remember, Moses allowed only on the heart, because of the hardness of, of the heart, she has the same freedoms that a native Israelite woman would have had. God's people must exercise their power toward the defenseless in a way that reflects God's exercise of power toward the defenseless. And this soldier would have known about God's use of power because his people were defenseless slaves in in Egypt when God rescued them. Let's take a moment just to, to comment on the relationship ethically between then and now. The way we treat another as Christian men and women peculiarly displays the gospel to a watching world. It was no different in the Old Covenant. Moses preached in Deuteronomy 4, 6, keep God's commandments and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples. When an Israelite soldier abided by this law in obedience to God, the nations would observe the goodness of God's law and the uniqueness of his grace among the ancient Near Eastern culture. When he refrained from exploiting the vulnerable woman, he would reflect God's gentleness toward the weak in the sight of the peoples. Israel's behavior, including the way they interacted as men and women, was to be missional. Not that there's any resonance with 1 Peter. And it would only be missional if it was distinctive, according to God's righteousness. So I think it's legitimate here that we ask ourselves about our use of power and what it communicates to the world around us. Who are the vulnerable people in our communities? Who has little social power compared to us? And are we aggressive about stewarding our power for their good? How we care for the weak is part of how the world knows who God is. God calls his people in the Old Covenant and in the New Covenant to use any power he gives us for his glory and for our neighbor's good. Our second observation is that this law also demands the recognition of the personhood of the most vulnerable. We we meet a desperate woman in this law. She's socioeconomically desperate. At best, this woman has just lost all her social power since her people are no longer an independent clan but servants of Israel. At worst, this woman has just experienced the trauma of losing all the men in her life which in the ancient Near Eastern social conventions would mean that she's now without any kind of protection whatsoever. She's utterly vulnerable. And she's spiritually desperate. In the ancient Near Eastern religious worldview, gods and goddesses were conceived of as territorial deities. So people had to pay homage to the particular gods of the particular regions. 
So there, there are two potential ways of viewing this woman's spiritual condition. Either she was spiritually abandoned because her God had rejected her and just handed her over to Israel's God, again, in the ancient Near Eastern way of thinking, or she was spiritually helpless because her God was impotent against Israel's God. This is the desperate condition of the woman whom the victorious soldier brings home to Israel to be his wife. But before he can consummate the marriage, he has to give her a month of space to undergo the rituals described in verses 12 through 13. Keep looking at your text. Now, there's some debate about the purpose of these rituals here in these verses, but probably they intend to give the woman time to grieve the loss of her family. So therefore, the law demands that he treat her as a person with emotions by affording her rituals for mourning. The rituals also probably foster her transition into Israelite society, perhaps by ritually renouncing her idolatrous past. So the law demands that he treat her as a spiritual person. And if he decides he doesn't want to marry her, or if he marries her and then later divorces her, he is prohibited from treating her like a slave. This biblical prohibition stands against some of what we see in other ancient Near Eastern law codes. Now, the stated reason in verse 14 for why the man must let the woman go free is since you have humiliated or afflicted her. This statement criticizes his rejection of her, which presupposes she's a person who's been violated by his action. The text is interested enough in her honor, in her shame. Sorry, let me, let me deliver that just brilliant line one more time. The text is interested enough in her honor to recognize her shame. So the law emphasizes the responsibilities of the powerful to use power in a way that respects the personhood of the most vulnerable. And our third observation is that this law is concerned with the covenant relationship. The law promotes covenant fidelity within human marriage because it places the man and woman in covenant union before they consummate their relationship sexually. And the law promotes covenant fidelity within Israel's relationship with God because it transitions a non-Israelite woman into Israelite society, religiously, transitions her before their marriage union. This is because... Though the covenant nation of Israel did include a mixed multitude, including Moses' own wife, Israelites were to marry only those who were faithful to God, no matter their ethnicity, faithful to God. Marrying someone from the surrounding nations was prohibited since a spouse who worshipped false gods would be a snare within the marriage. So the Israelites would express their loyalty to God in part through their marital choice. So this legislation provides a transitional process by which the captive woman becomes a legitimate marriage partner. And this guards Israel's covenant fidelity to God. But the law does more than that. The law enables covenant fidelity within the woman's relationship with God. And this, it seems to me, is one of the law's biggest contributions to Old Testament ethics. Throughout Deuteronomy, the good life is defined according to God's covenant relationship with his people. Deuteronomy's law code prioritizes right relationship with God. This woman is granted entrance into the good life 
a right relationship with God, even as the circumstances that gave rise to this transition would have been very traumatic and expressed the brokenness of this world. God wants every person to experience the privilege of knowing him. He ensures that this vulnerable woman is not an it, but a thou, defined by covenant relationship. The female captive removes her garments of captivity. She's now in a position to know the one true God within a special covenant relationship and to experience his steadfast love and his grace lavished upon his elect people. And her legally binding inclusion in the covenant community would ensure protection and blessing for her and for her offspring. Even in the worst case scenario, that of divorce described in verse 14, she and her offspring are protected legally. It's worth noting that because this is case law, there would have been wider implications for this legislation's affirmation of the personhood of the female captive. This case law ought to have been applied by Israel's leaders in related situations to defend the defenseless and call for those with power to steward it for the sake of bringing covenantal wholeness to the most vulnerable in society. It offers principles for how we do this and how we work toward righteousness, purity, and the prosperity of others. Let's turn our attention now to our second challenging text for the day, and that's Numbers 5, 11 through 31. I'll give you a moment to turn there. Numbers 5, 11 through 31. Numbers 5. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel. If any man's wife go astray and breaks faith with him, if a man, sorry, I'm too far away from my Bible. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel. If any man's wife goes astray and breaks faith with him, if a man lies with her sexually and it is hidden from the eyes of her husband, and she is undetected, though she has defiled herself, and there is no witness against her, since she was not taken in the act, and if the spirit of jealousy comes over him and he is jealous of his wife who has defiled herself, or if the spirit of jealousy comes over him and he is jealous of his wife, though she has not defiled herself, then the man shall bring his wife to the priest and bring the offering required of her, a tenth of an ephah of barley flour. He shall pour no oil on it and put no frankincense on it, for it is a grain offering of jealousy, a grain offering of remembrance, bringing iniquity to remembrance. And the priest shall bring her near and set her before the Lord. And the priest shall take holy water in an earthenware vessel and take some of the dust that is on the floor of the tabernacle and put it into the water. And the priest shall set the woman before the Lord and unbind the hair of the woman's head and place in her hands the grain offering of remembrance, which is the grain offering of jealousy. And in his hand the priest shall have the water of bitterness that brings the curse. Then the priest shall make her take an oath, saying, If no man has lain with you, and if you have not turned aside to uncleanness while you were under your husband's authority, be free from this water of bitterness that brings the curse. But if you have gone astray, though you are under your husband's authority, and if you have defiled yourself, and some man other than your husband has lain with you, then... 
Let the priest make the woman take the oath of the curse and say to the woman, The Lord make you a curse and an oath among your people. When the Lord makes your thigh fall away and your body swell, may this water that brings the curse pass into your bowels and make your womb swell and your thigh fall away. And the woman shall say, Amen, Amen. Then the priest shall write these curses in a book and wash them off into the water of bitterness. And he shall make the woman drink the water of bitterness that brings the curse. And the water that brings the curse shall enter into her and cause bitter pain. And the priest shall take the grain offering of jealousy out of the woman's hand and shall wave the grain offering before the Lord and bring it to the altar. And the priest shall take a handful of the grain offering as its memorial portion and burn it on the altar. And afterwards shall make the woman drink the water. And when he has made her drink the water, then if she has defiled herself and broken faith with her husband, the water that brings the curse shall enter into her and cause bitter pain. And her womb shall swell, and her thigh shall fall away, and the woman shall become a curse among her people. But if the woman has not defiled herself and is clean, and is clean, Then she shall be free and shall conceive children. This is the law in cases of jealousy. When a wife, though under her husband's authority, goes astray and defiles herself. Or when the spirit of jealousy comes over a man and he is jealous of his wife. Then he shall set the woman before the Lord and the priest shall carry out for her all this law. The man shall be free from iniquity, but the woman shall bear her iniquity. Talk to me. (laughs) What about this law might trouble a contemporary Western reader? These are texts that intimidate us, right? These are texts that if we're teaching through the Bible, we like to avoid because they're intimidating. What would strike a contemporary reader? Where's the passage on the man's punishment? Absolutely. That's probably the first thing that would pop into their mind. What about the man with whom she, it takes two to tango. Sorry, that was, but it is true. Isn't this a demeaning and humiliating process? In case you didn't hear that, the, the, the man, the husband, I assume you mean, just seems justified. I mean, he has this spirit of jealousy and hey, even if he's wrong, he's still vindicated. Yep. Mm. Mm. That's a good, we're actually going to touch on that um, because I I don't agree with you all the way, but I think you're right to say even an innocent woman, this is grueling and potentially sickening for even an innocent woman. That's where I would, that's how far I would go with you, but that's a good comment. The woman is treated as untrustworthy. The man has all the power again. Mm-hmm. The man has all the power, the priest, the husband. Yep, one more. <laughs> we'll come to that. <laughs> you're, you're like, that's part of the curse. No, no, just kidding, just kidding. That was a joke. All right, so, I mean, imagine reading this text with a non-Christian. <laughs> how would you get to the bottom of what this law means and how it's functioning in its own context? We don't want to be overly simplistic or try to explain away the hard realities in this text. But we do want to try as best we can to at least 
begin to unpack some of what might help us understand how it's, it's functioning in its own context. Well, what's the presenting issue? Let's just make sure we're all on the same page. What gives rise to the enactment of this ritual? A husband suspects that his wife has cheated on him, but he has no evidence admissible in court because there are no witnesses to the act. Did you hear that in, in the text? There are no witnesses to the act. And the Mosaic law demanded that witnesses establish guilt. So if the man wants to take action on this matter, he must bring his wife to the tabernacle where God will serve as judge. Is that clear? That's an important premise. But why is adultery such a big deal? What's at stake? Well, the whole community. This law, and this is on your handout, then we're back to the fill in the blanks, ladies. <laughs> Come on. This law aims to guard the covenant community from defilement, which would compromise God's presence in their midst. The laws in Numbers 5 are concerned to maintain purity in the camp. For example, the language of defilement is used seven times in this passage. The Israelite camp was a theocracy whereby God peculiarly dwelled in their midst, the midst of the camp, and reigned as their divine king. If God and his holiness is going to dwell in a peculiar way in their midst, they must be sure to follow these commandments and reverence his name. So someone, man or woman, who has engaged in sexual intercourse outside of a marriage covenant has put the whole community at risk by violating God's commandment. So if a man suspects his wife, he may bring her to God to enact this ritual. And here it is. The woman is brought to the priest at the tabernacle. She's set before the Lord with unbound hair, given the grain offering in her hands to offer to the Lord, given a cup of water that contains ink from the curses. Did you notice that? Contains ink from the curses written on parchment and dust from the tabernacle floor. The priest then leads her in an oath by which she accepts the consequences of the curse if she's proven guilty. Then, after the priest offers her grain offering to the Lord, she drinks the water of bitterness from the cup. That's the, that's the progression. If she's innocent, she won't experience severe negative physical consequences. If she's guilty, she'll experience severe physical consequences. While there's significant debate about what exactly is in view here, probably the language describing the physical consequences is euphemistic, and I'm going to keep it that way. The idea is that the very organs with which she sinned against the Lord and her husband are the organs that will distend, and that this physical integration would bring about her inability to bear more children. Now, again, there's debate, but that, to me, seems like what the consequence is. The woman would degenerate in her capacity to bear children, and she would become a byword, a curse among other women. Now, again, I'm just going to set forth a few observations, not exhaustively, a few observations that I think are worth considering. First, this law guards the covenant community from defilement by upholding the marriage covenant. Like the legislation in Deuteronomy 21, this ritual enters into harsh realities of life in a broken and fallen world. It's case law. Either a husband legitimately has a spirit of jealousy because the marriage has truly been violated, or he has a false spirit of jealousy. 
And a false spirit of jealousy in that context would have threatened his wife and their marriage, even though she's innocent. The ritual then distinguishes between actual unwitnessed adultery and, quote, unwitnessed adultery that never happened. There's no question that this law demonstrates the highest regard for marital fidelity. Remember that God is so deeply concerned for marital fidelity in part because of marriage's role to anticipate and portray God's ultimate salvation in, in Christ, culminating in the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is important that we remember that in the Mosaic law, men and women were held equally responsible to honor the marriage covenant. Elsewhere, like in Leviticus 20 and Deuteronomy 22, both a man and a woman caught in the act of adultery received the death penalty. Secondly, the law guards the covenant community from defilement by curbing the potential abuse of power. It restrains a man's aggression against his wife within an ancient Near Eastern world in which men all too often, and not that this is, I mean, that this applies today, men all too often abuse their authority and took matters into their own hands without justification. And in this specific situation, a man might be severely tempted to exploit physical and social power. If the husband is falsely suspicious, the law protects him from legal recrimination, as we mentioned. And we see that in verse 31. But this protection of the wrongly suspicious husband actually protects, in my view, the innocent wife as well. Because of this protection for the man, it's all the more likely that he will enact this ritual rather than destroy the marriage by harboring suspicion or hatred or destroy his wife by dealing with her as if she were guilty. The bottom line is that while misogyny may have factored into a particular husband's suspicion of his wife, and we need to say that, it may have factored into the enactment of this ritual, the law itself restrained this kind of misogyny and prohibited a man, prohibited a man from taking matters into his own hands. Thirdly, the law guards the covenant community from defilement by protecting the socially vulnerable. We can see this in at least three ways. I know you're happy to have three subpoints. Come on. We can see this in at least three ways. First, the law protects the socially vulnerable woman by rendering her case outside of human jurisprudence. The second clause of verse 31, the one that we complained about, you know, it strikes us funny but the woman shall bear the iniquity, bear her iniquity. While apparently harsh, it's actually technical language intended to remove the matter from human judgment. She shall bear her iniquity. We, we see this language of a person bearing his or her iniquity throughout the Mosaic law, often in situations where a sin is either private or otherwise unactionable in the human court of law. So the basic idea is that the husband and the priest must trust God to guard his own dwelling place and to, to submit to him as righteous judge. Hear this, the law firmly prohibits legal penalty of a person based only on suspicion. 
Secondly, also, this law protects the socially vulnerable woman by supplanting ancient Near Eastern practices that were, done, that were enacted for similar situations. What sorts of things do we know about similar situations in ancient Near Eastern cultures? Well, to be honest, we don't know a ton. But what we know is not a pretty picture. A trial by ordeal seemed to have been a well-known judicial practice that, that determined the guilt or innocence of an accused person. Listen to this. In the Code of Hammurabi, for example, a woman rumored of committing adultery must undergo a trial by ordeal. She must throw herself into the river Euphrates. The predominant issue, by the way, in the law is the man's reputation. If she survived the ordeal and kept from drowning, the understanding would be that the god of the river had confirmed her innocence in the matter. If she died by this water ordeal, the understanding would be that the god of the river Euphrates had confirmed her guilt through her death. In this sense, the ordeal similarly relegated the judicial verdict to the court of the gods. Now here's another one. This is even worse. There's more evidence from Mari that people who wanted to prove the truthfulness of their statements, probably meaning they had been accused by someone, were forced to take a plunge into a bitumen well, a pit full of toxic liquids, because this was thought to be the home of the gods. If the gods spit them out, in other words, if they survived, their statements were proven to be true. If they died in the well, their statement was proven to be false, and the god of the well had judged them. But please note that these other trials are intrinsically life-threatening, and the woman's drowning in both cases confirmed her guilt. In Numbers 5, the woman drinks water with dust from the tabernacle floor and some of the non-toxic ink from the book. There's nothing that's severely intrinsically harmful to her body in this ritual in terms of the amount of her ingestion. It's an act of faith. She, she's innocent until proven guilty by miracle from God. She's innocent until proven guilty by miracle from God. This legislation then implicitly denounces the physical brutality of the ancient Near Eastern trial by ordeal. And listen, its presence in the scriptures means that an Israelite man suspicious of his wife can't simply do what his neighbors do. Yet again, he must acknowledge her personhood and place her in God's hands. And lastly, this law protects the socially vulnerable woman by vindicating the innocent. Certainly, we, we always have to be sober about this and candid about this. Certainly, this case law doesn't reflect a sinless, perfected society. We shouldn't gloss over the fact, as we've said, that an innocent woman subjected to this ritual might endure shame and terror and grueling, a grueling emotional roller coaster. But God's vindication of the innocent is no marginal matter. If God acquits the woman, the righteous husband must treat her as innocent following the evidence of her acquittal. If he continues to treat her as though she were guilty, even though God had acquitted her, then he defies the judge of Israel. 
and her community would have to acknowledge her innocence. In this ritual, God himself serves as the advocate and arbiter for a falsely accused woman. There are also two other possibilities to note about her vindication, and I want to say they're possibilities. It's possible that in an honor-shame culture, this woman's exoneration would have brought implicit rebuke for the man, even though it wasn't legal rebuke. And then secondly, it's possible that verse 28, which we noted, verse 28 promises to an innocent woman who has endured this ritual that she will bear a child to demonstrate publicly her innocence. This means that an innocent woman undergoing the trauma of this ritual could cling to the promise of a child throughout it. This brief, non-exhaustive analysis of just one aspect of these Old Testament laws, which is that of how they functioned in their original context, it hasn't been an attempt to, to tame some of the harsh realities described in these laws or to pretend as if there aren't serious interpretive difficulties. These issues merit more discussion, and I wish we could have it. <laughs> But especially when we analyze these texts according to the gospel shape of Scripture, we see how the Old Testament law finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And we see how these laws reveal truths about God's character, his fierce love for the defenseless, his, his passion for covenant faithfulness and purity. And we see how these laws develop trajectories that are fulfilled in Christ's building of his church a unified people comprised of his blood-bought male and female image bearers. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for we are all one in Christ. And we know this, don't we, that one day very soon, Christ's redemptive work will culminate in the new heavens and new earth where he will make all things new and fully restore us by his grace. In this place, God will dwell with his people as their God and finally remove all pain and all hardship, including the strife and the cruelty we presently experience and even at times in which we participate in a sinful, broken world. We wait and hope for that day when God's everlasting purposes for true human flourishing will be fully manifest. You all have been very patient with me as we've marched through a lot of material at a rapid pace. I, I do wish I could hear from you. I imagine that reading these very difficult texts and with all the issues that arise, I imagine that many things are going on in your mind and heart. I hope perhaps that you'll be able to visit with one another about it. Well, that's it for this one today. If you'd like to come on Restitutio and leave a comment about this episode, clarifying anything or pointing out other verses worthy of discussion, please visit restitutio.org and add your voice to the mix. Thanks so much for listening. We'll catch you next week. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.